1: Rubel, welcome to the Jesus Christ Show. Hi, Jesus. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. How can I help you?
2: Okay, um, it's just something I've always done. It's just you know, when if you don't believe someone, you make them swear to God. And if, mm-hmm. I figure if you swear to God and you're telling the truth, it's not a problem. If you swear to God and you lie, you burn in hell. So that's like, I I don't see the difference between that and swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help be God. Is is that people? People always tell me that's a sin to swear to God, even if you're telling the truth. Well, can you, the, can you clear the, that up for me, the,
1: the two are different. Um, one, in the case of uh, being in a courtroom, you're swearing to tell the truth. You're not swearing to God. You're saying, "So help you, God," meaning that there will be consequences to you not telling the truth. Um, when you swear to God, you are putting yourself in covenant with God uh, in regards to a, any particular topic that you will not follow through with, even if you think you're telling the truth. You will not follow through with. An example of this, and I'm going to give you just a tiny bit of of homework, is you can go through and you you can read the Abrahamic uh, covenant found in Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 3, and you can see the ceremony that takes place there between God and Abraham, and how um, God the Father even uh, put Abraham to sleep so that he wouldn't walk down this aisle and be a part of uh, this covenant, as was normally the case, when two people were making a covenant, they both walk down um, this aisle. It seems quite strange by today's standards. Um, uh, dealing with uh, th- these these offerings, and for the, the point of understanding, you had these uh, two two halves of animals, and they would walk through, and the two parties would pass through to show that they're bond uh, with this covenant and this belief. Well, if in this particular safe in case this covenant was with between God and Abraham God didn't even want Abraham to walk down it for many reasons one of which is that Abraham would not have been able to live up to it as any man would not have been able to live up with it to it so God represented both sides in this case and um God ended up being the one uh who made the covenant with himself so a- Abraham en- ends up being a party to it but a silent party in this particular case and when you swear to God, and I know it becomes kind of a, a just a vernacular, and it gets thrown around, it does a couple of things. One, it makes a, a, a promise to God that you cannot keep because you're human and you're fallible. And two, uh, on the flip side, it makes it, uh, it it makes it trite. It makes it uh, um, small and meaningless uh, to throw around God's name in that context and to say you know say these things. Also, in Scripture, uh, another part that might be playing into this is it says, let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. That's it. So if you have to go to the, the place where you're starting to swear all the time, that means that that implies that other times you're not telling the truth. That if you have to say, no, this time I'm really telling the truth, but last time I lied to you is what it's implying. And so it's better to get to a point uh, Especially with your friends, that the confidence is in the person saying it. That if you're saying, if you're making the claim, that you're making the claim based on the best knowledge you have, uh, and doing it wholeheartedly, and not somehow, you know, going, well, no, most of the time I'm I'm full of garbage, but this time, no, nah, I'm actually telling the truth. Watch, I'll even swear to God. One, don't bring me into it. If there's something that you you want to stand on, stand on on your own. Say, I believe this to be true, and you know it, that I believe it to be true because it's coming out of my mouth. Sandy, welcome to the Jesus Christ Show.
2: Hi, Jesus. Thank you for taking my call. I my have pleasure. a question about
1: Genesis one twenty seven, where mm-hmm. God says, So God created man in, in his own image. Oh, 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 you oh, mean I'm one behind? One be, twenty six, possibly. Yeah. Let us make man in our image. He's he's speaking in plural there, and mm-hmm. it confuses me. Uh, you know, some people uh, you're in good company. Uh, some people get confused by that, and there actually is about three different explanations that people, uh, theologians and the like, go to uh, when it comes to this particular passage. the The most simplistic answer. Um, is the direct answer, and that is that in the Hebrew, the word Elohim, which is used there for God, is actually plural. It's, it, the word by its very nature is plural. So some say just uh, by way of assumption that the basic grammar uh, begs for that response. So it says the, the name of God in this sense is plural, then it goes on to say, um, uh, let us go down and make man in our image, has to be plural because the name of God in that context is plural. So academically, that's the simplest answer. Uh-huh. Um, now people get confused and go, well, why is God's name plural in that case? Well, God's name goes from plural to singular um, throughout Scripture, uh, depending on the context. But God in the Judeo-Christian uh, belief system is always one. It always one. Uh, the Shema is hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." Um, the word there, "achad," is uh, that means one is very important. So, as a as a belief system that's that's a monotheistic belief system, you believe in one God. That doesn't make God plural. That merely says that uh, the massiveness of God is a plurality, but God is not plural. There's not many gods. So the debate goes on here from there and goes from the just a simple word study into the possibility that it could be there are some that believe that it's merely um god speaking uh to the godhead the father the son and the holy spirit and I there are, that could be possible Yeah, absolutely. There are many wonderful theologians um that believe that. Uh not putting him in the wonderful theologian category, but my producer Neil believes that. Um, also, in in addition to that, there are some that even maybe on a stretch um, look at this as a possible use of the majestic we, you know, the old uh, uh, Elizabethan um, uh, we are not to muse or the Queen Victoria, that those type of kind of majestic terms always speaking in plurality. Um, but the context doesn't really uh, denote that. And then, lastly, there are those that believe that it's um, the Father speaking to the the, the Holy Host of Angels, um, but that doesn't sit true in the context because it says, "Let us go down and make man in our image." And um, angels uh, are debatable as far as being made in the image of God to begin with, uh, let alone going and creating creation further, based on another creation, which is angels. So. The most likely uh, uh, explanation is uh, dealing with strictly that it's just the language, the way the language was, um, speaks that the name of God, Elohim, in this case, is plural, therefore uh, let us, uh, grammatically, has to be plural as well. Um, But I think that since the rest of Scripture, as you go through, often speaks of the Trinity, uh, and I'm going to reference matthew three sixteen and seventeen second corinthians thirteen fourteen first peter one two um, is you know spoken about throughout scripture now it's not necessarily fully developed in the old testament, but if you read um psalm one ten one isaiah sixty three seven isaiah nine uh, uh or sixty three seven nine and ten as well and uh, Proverbs thirty, uh, verse four, I think that you get a good insight as to the Trinity is something that exists and is obviously deeply rooted in uh, in Scripture. Jim, welcome to the Jesus Christ Show.
2: Hi, Jesus. Great to talk to you.
1: My pleasure, Jim. How can I help you?
2: Uh, conundrum in some of my some of the churches I've been in in the past, as I realized that my Um, I was kind of just a Christian in name only, the way I lived my life for years and years. And as I get into your Word and start studying and being in a lot of Bible studies, uh, realizing that my fruit was rotten and uh, people would know me, that I wasn't living the way I needed to live. Well, now, as the more I study, uh, I'll know others by by their fruit. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing that, that... It seems so hard to to get a pastor to address, especially a male pastor, Mm -hmm. is immodest dress among women, Mm -hmm. especially in church, especially Mm -hmm. cleavage. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I brought up to uh, a person at church, what if I wore my cap in church every Sunday? They said, well, people will be asking you to take it off. And I say, why? What's the difference between You know, they said, you know, there was obvious reasons for that, but nobody, even the women won't go to some of the other women and say, look, darling, we'd like you to dress a little more modestly, or the Lord would like you to, or that's, and then what's really weird is when somebody has a cross, a lady has a cross hanging right between that area, you
1: Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Her decolage. So
2: so I don't want to, you know, people say, well, we're not supposed to judge, I understand that, but... So anyway, it seems to cause a stumbling block for men. To me, it seems to cause a stumbling block to men who have problems with sexual addiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I just wondered, what do you think about all that?
1: Well, there's many verses, and I'm going to try and get to as many of them as I can in the time that we have allotted. Um, First of all, the hat issue is a specific issue spoken about in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 4 through 7. So about a man wearing a hat. And so that might be a little more specific. But as far as a woman showing her cleavage or not showing her cleavage, there's not necessarily a specific verse for that in Scripture. Uh, The misunderstanding in Scripture uh, deals a lot as far as what modesty is. You kind of have to know based on yourself. There are all kinds of weird fetishes out there where men like ankles or feet or hands, and you're not going to have the women cover their hands or their feet or their ankles— um, just because there's men that have issues with it. That would be silly. Wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. So there's there's a balance and an understanding here. 1 Timothy 2, 9 uh, and 10, 1 Peter 3 uh, two through 5 will give you an idea of certain verses that talk about um, uh, modesty and dress for women in particular. Um, but you kind of have to know more than that. You kind of have to know the history of what took place here in the biblical times. It's not about women wearing pants or not wearing pants. It's totally fine with women wearing pants. Um, It's really speaking about the beauty of an individual should come from um, their faith and their understanding of God, not from adornment. That's the first thing. As far as modesty, the rules of modesty are going to change as they've changed throughout the centuries. So it's going to be hard, Jim, for you to say—now, you may know it when you see it. You may say, "That, that bothers me. But to dictate that to someone else, there's not going to be a, a, a biblical precedent for that. There's not going to be a place where you can say you can't do this specifically because the uh, in Scripture it talks about general ideas or things that were combating the view or, or to, uh, the appearance of being a pagan, not so much just for the sake of um, looking a particular way. So modesty is going to change, and you're going to have to kind of change with it. If something bothers you, then you need not to look at it, um, but a woman showing her cleavage isn't less necessarily the end of the world. Okay, we were, we were up a, against a break there, and Jim had such a great question. There's more to it that I wanted to get into. It's not that women should be able to do whatever they want any more than a man can do whatever he wants in church. And, uh, but when it comes to cleavage, there's, there's an area of discernment that's going to be different with different people. There is nothing inherently vulgar about cleavage. The interpretation of that cleavage would be based on an individual uh, person. So if it's something, it's really the way a man looks at the cleavage that's the problem. And so there's kind of a, 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 a marriage that should be done between the two. A woman should not be putting a man in the area of lust and a man should not be lusting. So at to what point that happens, and truly it doesn't you don't need cleavage to lust. So at what point should be the discernment uh, discernment of the individuals uh, in any particular case? Uh, are there women that dress inappropriately at church? Absolutely. I see it quite often. Uh, that it looks like women are going to a beauty contest. And some of these uh, uh, churches really have very cliquish popularity contests, and um, these are the wealthy groups, and they're uh, very fantastic churches, and um, these are all the books we've written, and these are all the music CDs we've put out, and all of these things, and it gets to the point where the gospel is kind of put in the back seat. And people are wearing all their fancy clothing, and look how wealthy or look how productive I am uh, in this world. And yes, that can take away from from the cause of Christ. But you also have to—a uh, woman may say, hey, a guy in, in T-shirts and jeans does it for her. And is she going to dictate now, I don't want T-shirt and jeans and, you know— Baggy pants looks like you're a gangster. Tight pants looks like uh, you're trying to show off your goods. There's You're going to have to use discernment, and it's not going to be one-size-fits-all. The clothing, the background, dealing with the clothing, biblical times, it was v- incredibly different from what you wear today. It was very similar what that what men and women wore. There was very few things that differentiated, and men often... Wore, uh, you know, this kind of loose woolen robe-like cloak, and it referred to in scripture often as a mantle. This this outer garment, and they have belt or something fastened around the waist, a sash, and uh, a coat that went over that. Long piece of piece of cloth, sometimes leather, uh, sandals. Men would wear turbans. I know you don't think of it that way, and you don't see a lot of biblical depictions that way in movies, but that's the truth. Uh, Women sometimes, uh, and in some cultures, would wear a veil, but not necessarily across the board. So there are some specifics that are talked about in Scripture. Cross-dressing is one of them, and part of that is due to the confusion that it caused. There were so many similarities in biblical times of how a man and a woman looked, and there were rules and laws as such. Men weren't supposed to touch women that weren't their wives. Some of the cross-dressing would cause confusion. Now, there's other insights. Some people say, well, this has to do with sexuality and these types of things. But there were basic concerns that if you didn't know that you you were reaching out to touch a man or a woman, that could cause problems. And the appearance was very similar. So those distinctions were important so that men would not get themselves into a situation and women would not get themselves into a situation. Um, in the New Testament, when it talks about proper dress for women, it says in 1 Timothy 2, 9-10, I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Does that mean that that a Christian woman cannot braid her hair or wear gold or pearls or expensive clothes? No. The context of this is trying to overshadow any of those things to make the individual not be about those material goods, but it be about the, the goods of the heart, good deeds, those things that were appropriate for women who professed to worship God. A lot of these uh biblical writings, were countering a concern at the time. The the epistles are really dealing with things that were going on in the church at the time that they were trying to combat. And so that comes out quite a bit uh, in the Scripture, and sometimes uh, when reading it, people don't put it in its proper context, and therefore um, it gets misunderstood. That there was a battle going on between the pagans, between new people coming to church and understanding this thing, this new church that was different than just temple to them. And an understanding is what uh, should be done there. Now, a lot of the New Testament uh, epistles, the letters, are dealing with these specific abuses during the early church growth. And some people feel, some theologians feel, that uh, Paul was, was very big on declaring all people equal men and women equal. And that wasn't always the case in some religious views at the time. And that everyone was part of the family of God. You can reference Galatians 3, uh, 26 through 29. And there are a lot of uh, theologians and scholars that believe that um, at this time, there were women that were feeling their new stated liberation and going overboard. And you see that all the time. There's people that uh, they get a new lease or... They have a freedom that comes to them, and the first desire is to swing the pendulum all the way to the other side and not find balance. And some theologians believe that these uh, statements in 1 Timothy 2, 9-10 and 1 Peter 3, 2-5 uh, were, uh, were addressing this kind of swing to the opposite side as uh, the early church was saying, no, men and women are equal. And uh, women have rights. I know that sounds different than what some people would like to tell you Scripture in the New Testament says, but that's the truth. Uh, Scripture was about liberating women and and showing the equality between men and women. Uh, And uh, not saying that there isn't different positions, because there are. Everyone has different positions, and women give birth, men do not, and things like that. But some feel that uh, during the time historically, women um, started going— Overboard because of the repression and the oppression, and going uh, overboard, and this was to squelch that. In response, saying, "Hey, hey, 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 tone it down a bit. It's not about that. It's still it's about your heart, uh, and and that's what God wants to see, and not your adornments. And don't cause someone to stumble. Stumble. Scripture does say that that a brother should not cause another brother to stumble. So in the case of cleavage. In the case of a woman dressing attractive, at what point do you say "Hey, that's causing me to stumble," and it's infringing on their liberties or freedoms as a Christian that's something for you. If you really feel that you you know you feel moved to go up to somebody and and in the case of being at a church and you feel that a woman's dressing inappropriately and you wanna approach her and say, "Um." I I in no way want to make you feel embarrassed or feel bad about yourself. Um, It's just a struggle for me here at church to focus on God when I find that some people are wearing mini skirts or, you know, half tops or things like that. I think it's very appropriate to go up and say, hey, I have an issue with this, or um, it's really distracting. And I don't mean that to make you feel bad in any way, shape, or form. That's just the truth of it. And it's hard for me to get past that and get to that point um, of worshiping God. But when you start, you know, saying, well, then there may be something that she finds distracting, and you go back and forth, and that's when problems arise. Uh, it is difficult for, for male pastors to speak on these things because um, it may be looked upon uh, as uh, as patriarchal, lean on women and women alone. It's not very fair in the eyes of a woman that uh, since women don't look at men as sexual objects in the same way, in the same sense, that it's, it doesn't affect men. So now the women are the ones that are constantly having to deal with this because the guys can't see them in fitted pants or a fitted top without thinking that them sexually. So I would say that it is very much a combined effort um, that men need to see women differently and women need to understand that men do look at them and the combination should uh, birth a new uh, modesty in the church but what is modest now for better or for worse um is different than what was modest 2000 years ago and that can't you can't pass that up i don't think that's fair to take it out of context and not understand that. So the battle does continue, and and I, I understand that a lot of men be, uh, deal with this, and, and women, I want you to know that and to think about that when you're dressing uh, as men and women should be going to church uh, for God and not to show off their latest outfits or to uh, somehow show off their bodies. charlie welcome to the jesus christ show hi hi charlie i have a uh... uh kind of a theological question for you Okay. Um, if god is all-knowing then does he know those that are going to be saved um, I-, I was told that uh... salvation does not come through choice that god knows your uh, actions prior to you taking them and the question I have then going along those lines, did you die for everyone, as the Bible says, or is there limited atonement for the elect that you read about in Ephesians in second Peter and there's a few other books uh, because I'm always uh, I always hear the uh, scripture reference that uh, uh, none should perish. And I was just curious as to, uh, What your take was on that? Yes, this is one of those theological dilemmas that uh, uh, sometimes it's right in front of you and people don't seem to see it. Uh, When it comes to being all knowing, that doesn't mean dictating. Um, Charlie, you remember that that old silly show, um, the Newlywed Game. And the premise was that uh, the husband and wife, the newlyweds, one would go where they couldn't hear, and the other would uh, sit and answer questions that they thought the spouse would say. Hmm. Um, And then they'd come back together, and you'd see how many of them you got right. So uh, what's your uh, wife's favorite ice cream? And and the man, the newlywed man, would say, um, it's chocolate. Or they might even word it this way if we had chocolate and vanilla here for your wife to choose to eat today, which would she choose? And, and the man would say chocolate. Now, that's because he knows that individual. And this the whole premise of that show was to, to point out how well they knew each other. And it doesn't dictate, and it doesn't mean that the husband is forcing the woman, the wife, to eat chocolate ice cream. It's that the man knows her so well through his love for her, and attentiveness, that he knows that she would choose ice cream. That in no way forces her choice. So God's foreknowledge doesn't force the choice of the individual. He simply, and I say simply because he's God, he simply knows what choice will be made by the individual. But that doesn't mean that the the, uh, choices or the availability of those choices aren't there for everyone. Of course they are. But if you don't like vanilla, and you'll never eat vanilla, no matter what, then vanilla really isn't even a choice to you. Only the chocolate is, or anything that's not vanilla. So there are individuals that will reject God no matter what. They just don't want to know God. They don't want to be accountable to God here. They certainly don't want to be with God in heaven for eternity, which is what heaven is. Everyone thinks, well, Heaven is this great reward. It's like, oh, we get to go to heaven, and we're going to have you know fast cars, and we're going to be able to eat all the ice cream we want, and do what. It, and that's not what heaven is. Heaven is being in the presence of God and worshiping God. And if you don't want to do that here on earth, God allows people not to do it. So it comes back to the fact that if God knows what your choice will be, it has no way uh, an effect on what your choice is. It doesn't mean that God forced the choice. He just knows what your choice is going to be. Now, as far as the elect, it depends on the definition of elect. Some people uh, feel that uh, election is not done on God's end. God wishes everyone, God desires everyone to be saved. The blood on the cross is there for everyone. You're correct. Across the board. But there are those that will receive... And there are those that won't. And the ones that receive are the elect because they will receive, not because they are somehow separated from everyone else by God. And and therefore, um, God is playing a game with everyone and saying, well, you know, it's impossible for you to win this game, but you're going to play it anyways. It's not like that. It's everyone does get a fair chance, although God does know who will receive and who won't. And you, it's still more valuable to have that option and reject it than it is to not have been created at all. There's no v- moral value in nothingness. So you can't say, well, what? why didn't God just create those that would choose him? Then there isn't truly a choice or a value in that process. You have to have the ability to accept or reject for there to be value in that choice. And just because God knows what you will choose doesn't mean you didn't have that value or didn't have that ability to choose there's a major major difference between god knowing and god forcing you to make that choice do you understand the difference between the two yes yes i do okay good you. good you're very very welcome
2: with the lucky land
1: slots, you
2: can get lucky just about anywhere